With that said, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Um, my name is Kyle Popich. Welcome to Senior Church. Glad to be here with you guys. I'm going to be speaking today, and I'm going to be speaking on this theme of whatever is good. And I'm actually really excited to speak about this message today because it was something that, as I got to study out, it was really encouraging, really inspiring, and really challenging to me. And so I hope that, you know, wherever you're at this morning, whatever you need, I hope that this message can give a little bit of that to you. Today we're going to spend most of our time in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to chapter 3, 8. But we're not going to stay only there. I normally like to stay in one spot. I'm not going to do it today. And, and the reason why is actually pretty simple. This idea of whatever is good spans a lot of Paul's writings, and it's strongly dominant in his three pastoral letters, one of which is Titus. So as we go through, and I want, I want to trace out this theme more than a section of scripture today. So we're going to kind of follow this trail through a few places in the Bible to see what Paul means when he says whatever is good. So with that said, I'm going to go ahead and read this section, and you know, little, uh, little disclaimer, it's a, it's a decent amount of scripture. So go ahead and, and buckle in. I'll, I'll read through it, and then we'll, we'll come back and break a couple things down. But starting in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and, it, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Continuing in chapter 3, it says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for us. All right, so I know that's a lot at your face in one moment, but I don't, I'm, we're not going to handle everything in that passage, but I want to take some time to look at that idea of what is good. If you notice, Paul used that phrase three times in that section. And the reason why I wanted to look at this section specifically to start is because, like I said, this theme is really expansive, so it's hard to find a place where Paul deals with it in, in a relatively short amount of time. But this is one of those places. He, he mentions it three times, and he does so intentionally, and he's tracing this idea of what is good through this section from Titus 2.11 to 3.8. And so this morning, what I want to share with you guys is this sermon originally came out of a couple realizations that I got to have from a few quiet times I was doing. I was reading through the book of Titus, and I kept coming across this phrase of what is good, and it just kept sticking in my mind. And so what I decided to do is I prayed about it, I meditated on it a lot, I really tried to think about what is good, what does that mean for me today? And I studied it out in some articles and different things that I read, and that eventually led to this sermon. So I had some pretty cool realizations, or at least realizations that were cool for me and, and that um, were useful for my life. And so my goal and my hope today is just to share some of that with you. Before I dive into what is good, though, I want to explain what was happening at the time Paul wrote the letter to Titus, because there's a very specific 
purpose that Paul is trying to accomplish with this letter because he gave Titus a very specific mission. So I want to go ahead and talk here. So if you look on the map behind me, this is a map that traces one of the possible routes of Paul's last missionary journey. If you don't know Paul, he went on a couple missionary journeys, and he basically preached the gospel throughout the known Roman world at the time. And the last one he took was with two of his very close workers, Timothy and Titus. So it started in Rome, which is up there in the map, and it sailed down the coast of Italy, and they crossed the Mediterranean Sea until they came to this little island called Crete. And what happened is when the three guys, Paul, Timothy, and Titus, landed at Crete, the Christian churches there were having a few issues. The way Christian churches functioned in the first century was a missionary would usually come to a place, preach the gospel, a few households would start to believe, and they would form a church. And from that point, it was pretty common that a missionary would stay about one to three years with that church, training them, helping them build them up, before he would move on once the church was self-sufficient. Well, what happened is, well, once the church was self-sufficient, they would then be locally governed by elders and deacons. And so the, an elder you can think of kind of like what Joe does, a minister who preaches and teaches, and deacons might be similar to family group leaders, people who help and have more specific focuses. So what happened was these elders were in charge of guiding the church, and when Paul, Timothy, and Titus reached Crete, the elders who were there were teaching things that went against the Bible. And we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but there were two main themes. The first one was, in order to be saved, it wasn't just about Jesus. You had to do a lot of extra stuff as well. There were certain rituals you had to complete, certain things you had to do every day. That salvation was dependent on you, not just Jesus. The second thing they were teaching was actually the opposite side of that coin, that because salvation is only dependent on Jesus, do whatever you want to do, live however you want to live, and it doesn't matter. And so Paul came, and when he wants to combat these teachings, but he doesn't have time. He has to keep going. So his solution is he leaves Titus behind on the island of Crete with the job of confronting these false teachers, taking them out of place, and putting in other teachers who are going to teach things more in line with the gospel. This map doesn't show it here, but after that, uh, Paul and Timothy continue, and they sail up to that west coast of Asia right to Ephesus there. And when they reach Ephesus, they encounter basically the same problem, so Paul has the same solution. What happens is he leaves Timothy behind to fight there in Ephesus, just like he left Titus behind on Crete. And then Paul continues into, uh, we don't know exactly where, but he continues into Greece here. And from somewhere in Greece, that's where he writes the three pastoral letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And he writes these letters to these two guys, basically giving them instructions on how to carry out what he's asked them to do. And so when Paul says this, when Paul talks about this theme of do what is good, he's specifically targeting those teachers who were arguing that the, the life of a Christian does not matter. You can just live however you want because God's not going to care. And instead, the idea of what Paul's saying here is completely, he's saying far from that, the life of a Christian does matter. And it should be marked by doing what's good. So I want to come back to that scripture that we just read. And I, wanna, I pulled out here in the slide the three different times Paul uses what is good in that section. In 2.14, when he starts out, he says, you know, Jesus has made us a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In 3.1, he says, remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. And when he closes the section, he says, those who have trusted in God should be careful to do, devote themselves to doing whatever is good. So like I said a little bit earlier, my hope this morning is I have three realizations, three things that as I just thought about the scripture and how they play out in my life, 
three things I realized about this idea of doing what's good that were encouraging and inspiring, and I'd like to share them with you today. So the first of them has to do with that idea of being eager and being ready as you look there in the first two of Paul's examples. I didn't read it today, but in Titus chapter 1, Paul also says we should love what is good. And so I thought to myself, what does this idea mean? What's Paul trying to get across? Why does he feel the need to repeat it so many times, be eager, be ready, love what is good? And I had this simple realization for myself. I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, but sometimes wanting to do what's good is harder than actually doing it. I don't know if you guys ever connect with that. You know, sometimes Joe wants to meet and have meetings and discuss what we want to do next. And so he'll text me. He'll be like, hey, Kyle, so happy to see you, man. I got some cool, exciting things I want to tell you. You know, let's get some time. Junkyard, 5 a.m. And my response to that, (laughs) when I see that text at 11 o'clock at night, I think to myself, that's not, that's not what I wanted to do at 5 a.m. tomorrow. (laughs) And so I get in my car. The moon's out. The stars are shining. It's all frosted over. And I'm just, the whole way driving over, I'm like, Joe, 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 (laughs) Joe. Just kidding. I love Joe. Those, the, the, those meetings are always fun and encouraging. And, you know, and, and, it's, and it's good to go, and I, I enjoy it. And, and, but sometimes wanting to do what's good is a little bit trickier. You know, and so I, uh, I had a conversation uh, with somebody. You guys, you guys may or may not know him. He's a pretty awesome guy named Phil. But <laughs> sorry. Sorry, it's an easy pun. Easy pun. But uh, Phil and I were having a conversation a couple years ago, and he quoted a scripture to me that really reminded me of this idea. And the scripture he quoted was one also written by Paul. I'm going to put it on the screen in a second here. Um, but we were, we, I, what I want to say is it wasn't, just how, it wasn't just that Phil quoted the scripture to me. It was how he quoted it. Because it wasn't something he'd read the day before. It wasn't something that, you know, he thought, oh, you know. Maybe, maybe this would be encouraging. When he said it to me, it came out of his mouth in such a way that I, I knew that scripture had been on his heart for a long time. And so I'm going to put it on the screen. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. Uh, it's uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. But before I read it, I want to make a point. Part of the reason I wanted to jump through others of Paul's writings is because the pastoral letters were the last ones written in his life. In fact, in them, he actually references his coming execution. And so when Paul's talking here, Paul, as far as we know, didn't have any sons or daughters or children of his own. And so in the first century, as a father was coming towards the end of his life, and he knew it was time for him to pass on the family business or pass on the farm or the inheritance to the sons, he would bring them in and he would give them a last word of wisdom. And so Paul, in his pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, He addresses them to Timothy and Titus, my sons in the faith. And so I don't read Paul's advice in those pastoral letters as isolated moments. He he wrote them to specific people, and he wrote them for a specific purpose. But I see them as the advice that comes from the culmination of 50, you know, 40, 50 years spent in deep relationship with God, evangelizing with God. Paul took Timothy and Titus on other missionary journeys throughout his life. I mean, these men had relationships that spanned 20, 30 years. And so I don't see these things as isolated moments. I see this as Paul's culminating advice. And I don't think when he said, be ready to do what's good, I don't think he was specifically thinking about Philippians 4.8. But the advice is consistent. It lines up. 
I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I think this really relates to the idea of we got to be ready to do good. Because I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but when I just go throughout my day, you know, Maybe, maybe I get in, you know, maybe I sin, I make a mistake, I mess up, I do something I shouldn't do, but maybe I don't even sin. Maybe I'm just going about my day just not being very conscious of God. What I experience is when I do that, when situations come up, my knee-jerk reaction, my reactive impulse isn't to respond with God. You know, I was, um, I didn't, you know, I, I started going to church and things like that in youth groups right around middle school. Sixth grade is when I really really first started, and I remember a lesson. It was one of the first ones I ever went to, and the guy who was speaking, he told me, he's like, you know what? Christianity is a lot like a math equation, and what he meant by that was the numbers you put in determine the answer you get out, and his point was that if you take time to put God in, to spend time in the word, to think about what is right, true, noble, pure, all those things, if you take time to meditate with him, to pray, spend time with people who do the same thing, then it, when situations come up, as opportunities to do good arise, you're going to respond with what's already inside. And he said, likely, likewise, the converse is also true. If you don't take the time to put God in, you can't give it out, because how can you put out what you don't internally possess? And I think that's the first step Paul's trying to get here. He's trying to say, hey, the first step isn't doing what's good. The first step is you've got to get yourself ready to do what's good. That's why Phil shared that scripture with me all those years ago. As he said to me, he's like, Kyle, the reason why I have this scripture is because obeying it, thinking about what's true, thinking about what's noble, thinking about what is right, helped him to live out and live towards what was true and noble and right. And so my first point, the first realization that I had today on doing what is good is that in order to do good, you got to be ready to do good. There was a second realization that I had, and that was that the distinction is clear. I don't know if you guys ever encounter this argument. I, I encounter it pretty frequently among people my age, and I'm sure it's not an isolated event. But when conversations with God come up, or about God come up, people love to tell me everything is relative. They love to tell me, you know, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no true or false. There's no black and white. Everything is 50 shades of gray. And the funny thing to me about that argument is it's not so different from the argument that people were making that Paul, Timothy, and Titus, Titus were trying to combat. That same idea of, you know, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not here to, to judge anybody who would advocate that argument by any means. You know, I'm, but what, what I am here to say is that God says something very different. God says there is right and wrong. There is good and bad. There is true and false. And Paul talks about this idea in uh, Galatians 5.19. Earlier in his life, when he was writing about sin, he said, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And, and by the same token, the acts of righteousness are also obvious. Paul continues this analogy later in his life when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, when he says, in a large house there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. 
And so Paul continues his analogy of righteous acts and unrighteous ones by taking the analogy of a home. And he says, within a home, <coughs> excuse me, within a home, you have some things that are expensive, that are worthy, some things that you treat with special care, and other things that are inexpensive, you know, that, that aren't so worthy that you don't treat with as, as special care. You know, and the idea here is you don't treat your plasma screen TV the same way you might treat your toilet, right? There's a difference there. And so what Paul's saying here is he uses that to show that, you know, there's a difference between righteous acts and unrighteous ones. And the point he's making is when you remove the unrighteous one, when you remove the acts of the sinful nature, you're left with the righteous one. And when that happens, you're made holy. When that happens, you're a good and faithful servant. You're useful to the master for any good work. And so the point that he's calling us to make here is to remember that the distinction is clear because when you, when, you don't, when you do what is good, you also don't do what's bad. It naturally steers your life back to God, back toward holiness. I came across um, a report the other day in one of my classes, and the, the, the point of the report, really the point of the whole class, is to try to show us that human beings are a lot more similar than we like to think we are. And it's a pretty cool sentiment. Um, one of the examples they gave was law. Law throughout human history and law across the globe. And the point they were trying to make is if you were to trace any civilization and you were to dig out their law code from ancient Egypt to today, regardless of technology, regardless of religion, regardless of political, economic system, the basic principles of the law are almost uniformly the same. How laws got carried out, specific ordinances varied, but the basic principles, meaning what the law would have deemed right and wrong, good or bad, are almost completely the same across humanity. And the, the authors of that study basically were trying to make the point that because of this, human beings are really a lot more connected than we think we are. And I thought that was a warm sentiment, but I saw something else in there also. The Bible talks about how the law of God is written on man's heart. And I saw that in here. Because not every religion, not every uh, nation has a Christian religion or, or believes in God or anything like that. But because we're all God's sons and daughters, his morals on what is right and wrong manifest in people and manifest in the laws that both Christian and non-Christian nations make. And the point there that I, that I really want to highlight is that, you know, with the exception of some extreme cases, most five-year-olds and most nations can identify pretty easily in a situation what is right and what is wrong. You know, by the time we're five, six, seven, we know you got to be nice to people. It's wrong to be mean. You don't bite people out in public. You know, like things like that, right? You don't kill. You don't steal. <laughs> and the point is that what is good is clear. Paul doesn't feel the need to say do what is good and then give a 50-point checklist uh, you know, that, that we can use to make sure we understand you know, the relative goodness of something. He just says do what is good, period. And so what I want to close this section out with you guys is I had a challenging realization when, when I was going through this idea. And the realization that I had was that sometimes for me, knowing what is good isn't the issue, simply doing it is. So my second point about what is good is what is good is obvious. I have one more of my final realizations, and then I'll, I'll move on to something else. But th this, this last realization, I saved it for last because it's my favorite, and I think it's the truth. 
and it was the one that inspired me the most. And so I'm going to share it now. What, what the realization was is what is good cannot be known. And here's what I mean by that. When I was studying out this passage, one of the main questions I wanted to ask myself was, what does Paul mean by good? What is he saying? You know, what actions are included? What actions are excluded? And I came across an article that, you know, written by some uh, biblical scholar. And the point that he was making is that if you really want to be faithful to this scripture, if you really want to be faithful to this idea of what Paul's saying about what is good, then you cannot narrow the term. You know, you can't come up here and say, you know, these three things are good or these five things or these ten things are good because you're going to exclude so many things that Paul meant to be included. And that was so inspiring to me because what it taught me is that God means for our lives as Christians to be consistent. God doesn't design Christianity so that you're a Christian in one or two or three areas or five or ten. Christianity is meant to uh, stretch to every part of our lives. You know, if I were to ask you guys, I think a lot of us could come up with good Christian work, right? You know, we could probably make a list of a pretty decent size. And the analogy that I read in the article to explain this idea is he said, the better way to think about it is not to think about an individual act, but instead to think about as any one Christian act like a stream. And think about that stream funneling into this massive, massive ocean of Christian work. And while every stream is important, every stream helps to create this ocean, no one stream can do it by itself. You need all of them. And that's how Christianity is meant to be lived. And that was really inspiring. I have this scripture on the board. This one actually wasn't written by Paul, but it was spoken by Jesus. So I think it's still worth looking at. But it says in Luke 16, 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And what he's getting at here is the idea that character is consistent. That if someone is responsible, they're going to be responsible when people are looking and when they aren't. And if someone is untrustworthy, they're going to be untrustworthy when the stakes are high and when the stakes are low. You know, I, I used to, I have a story, uh, when I read this scripture, I have a story that I was reminded of when I was a little kid. And I, I believe I've shared part of it before, so if it sounds familiar, please, you know, do me a favor and laugh at all the same jokes. And if it's new, then I hope you get something out of it. But like I said a little bit earlier, I, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad, my mom, they would both pray with us at night and things like that. So I always had some level of awareness with God uh, or of God or of Jesus. And th there wasn't really a time in my life where I would have said that I don't believe or that I, you know, didn't think God was out there. But I didn't grow up going to church. We started going to church closer to middle school. And so the way that happened was my mom got really, really sick. And I remember one of the nights when she got really sick, we didn't know what was happening. You know, the doctors couldn't figure it out. And so I remember I just, you know, I did what every 11-year-old kid at the time probably does and just prayed for God to save their mom. And God answered that prayer. My mom got better. She got healed. She, you know, she came out of the hospital. And when that happened, I really thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I better figure out who this God guy is. You know, I better, I better get to know him. But I didn't really have any, uh, you know, I didn't have someone that I could go ask deep spiritual questions to. I didn't have a church that I was aware of. I didn't have anybody to teach me how to understand God, but I did have a Bible. So what I did is I just, I took my Bible off the shelf and I started reading it like every other book. I, you know, I started reading it from page one. 
And so when I was 11, I, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, hours on end sometimes just reading the Bible. And I chugged through from Genesis about halfway through Job. And I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, that straight through, but when you're 11 years old, that does not make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really get much of what I was reading. I didn't have Joe to give me, you know, an hour and a half lesson on Jeremiah in order to explain the context and things like that. So I had to figure this out for myself. And I, I just would remember stories of people like, you know, people, you know, whole cities getting turned to fire, people getting turned to salt, and, and you know, fires consuming people who touch the wrong cups and things like that. Like, it got to the point my mom, you know, she would ask me for a glass of water, and I'd go to the cabinet. I'd be like, oh, wait, which one, God? Which one do I touch? I don't want to burn here. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, that, but <laughs> my point being, it was hard to understand. And one of the scriptures, this part, this part I'm actually being serious on, one of the scriptures I came across talked about how we need to love God more than we love the world. And so here's, here's why I shared this story. Here's the point that I want you guys to hear. Is when I read that scripture, I made a distinction. And so I thought to myself, okay, if I got to love God more than I love the world, I want to make sure I do that because I don't want to disobey this guy. So what I thought I would do is for every one worldly thing I did, I had to do one spiritual thing. And that way, you know, at the end of the day, each act to act added up, and I wasn't loving the world more than I was loving God. Obviously, not the intended meaning of that scripture, but that's how, that's how I lived. And so that's what I would do. And so if I did something worldly, and I don't, by worldly, I don't even necessarily mean bad. I mean, if I did my homework, or if I went to go play football with my friends at the park, or something like that, before I could go on to the next thing, I had to, you know, take some time to pray. Or I had to open up my Bible and read it first, because I had to make sure at the end of the day, my acts were evil. And here's the point, you know, thank God, you know, a little while later I had people come along who explained, you know, they, they put an end to my crazy, they explained that, and we moved on with life. But when I read this, this idea of what is good cannot be narrowed, I was reminded of that story. And here's the reason why. God doesn't design, didn't design life to have a distinction for the Christian between the worldly and the spiritual. God means everything to be spiritual. You know, I've been, uh, those of you, most of you, I think, are aware by now, but in case you're not, Allie and I have been dating for about three and a half years. <laughs> That's right, thank you. I don't know who that was, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Candace. <laughs> I think that deserves a little bit of that. That's awesome. It's all Hallie. She, she's fantastic. I just say, I just say yes and thank you. But, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I've done consistently throughout that time is every once in a while, I'll go on Saturday mornings, and her dad and I, Mike, will work in the yard together. Mike owns uh, a piece of land with a hill, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of trees and flowers and stuff. And we'll do whatever needs done in the yard that day, you know, whether it's pulling weeds or trimming uh, trees or things like that. And it's a fun time, and I really enjoy it. You know, it's, it's nice to be out there. You know, it's, it's calm, it's quiet. You can smell the flowers. You can hear birds. You just get to talk and spend some time. And I enjoy that time. But one of the things that Mike often says is you can learn a lot about God from working in a garden. And the more I do that, the more I realize that that's actually really true. You know, if, we, if you read the Bible, they make a lot of analogies of spiritual things to gardening and agriculture because that's what most of the people of the time did. That's what they could understand. 
And so, you know, if, if you crack open the Bible, I'm sure all of us are aware, right, parables that talk about how, you know, you got to plant the seed, and, you know, you know, when you plant the seed, you got to plant it in good soil so that its roots take and it grows to maturity and produces a crop, or, you know, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops, or, we, you know, sins are, are like weeds, and they can grow and they can spread. There's all these different types of analogies. And I see those things play out in my life. You know, when we go out there to pull weeds, sometimes they're sticky weeds to pull, but they're small, so you can just rip right through them and move on with your day. Other times, the weeds are pretty big, and they get to the point where you just, like, no matter what you do, I'll be, I'll be down there just trying to, like, yank, the, and it, you just can't do it. You just cannot get those guys out of the ground. And sin's the same way. You know, we all sin, we all make mistakes, and if you go through and pluck them when they're small, when they're young, usually, the, you know, consequences aren't too severe, and you can move on with your day. Sometimes, though, that sin, if we, if we let that sin grow to maturity, it gets to the point where you, you can't get that guy out. And by the time a weed hits that level of life, it's pollinating. And so one weed has become 30 weeds or 20 weeds or 50 weeds. And sin acts the same way. Another, another uh, analogy that I uh, thought of when I thought about this, my brother and I love to go and work out in the gym together. And my brother can outlift me in pretty much every lift imaginable. And let me tell you right now, I don't know if you're an older brother or an older sibling or not, but if you're, but as an older brother, when your little brother can outlift you, that'll humble you pretty quick. <laughs> you know, and sometimes my brother will do a weight, and then I'll have to take off half of what he did, and then I'll get underneath there and do it. And, but, you know, as, as funny as that is, there's something spiritual in that. Sometimes you got to be humble and admit where you're at, you know. Other times when I go to the gym, I'm really excited. I'm really pumped. I'm energetic. I want to be there. I want to try this lift, and I push myself, and, you know, I, maybe I do a new weight that I haven't done before, and it's really encouraging. And other times, the couch feels really good. <laughs> Christianity is the same way. Sometimes you're inspired. Sometimes you want to push yourself. Sometimes you're, you're just you're reaching new peaks and new peaks and new peaks, and other times the couch feels pretty good. And the point that I'm trying to make here, you guys, is that the same God designed all aspects of life. And therefore, the design is consistent. You can learn spiritual things all around you, and also we're called to act spiritually all around us. You know, I, um, I had one last realization that I wanted to share on this idea of, you know, what is good cannot be narrowed. And the Bible says sin is sin. And I think we all connect with that idea, right, that no one sin is worse than any other one sin before God's eyes because he's perfect. So the bar is perfection. You know, any infraction underneath that, you missed the cut. But we don't live in a world where sin has equal consequences, right? Some sins are more, have more severe repercussions than others, right? You murder somebody, you cheat on your wife, the consequences of that might be a lot more severe than if maybe you say something rude at the end of a long day. And so we as human beings, though we know sin is sin, we live, for lack of a better term, we live by assigning levels of importance to sin. And what I want to talk about for a second is I think we do the same with acts of goodness as well. You know, we might not assign the same level of goodness to doing the dishes before your spouse gets home because you know that will encourage them that we assign to helping someone become a Christian for example. And I'm not advocating that we shouldn't prioritize those things. You know, it's clear, you know, in the Bible we know one of the best parts of getting to be a Christian is help other people know God. And, and, you know, we all, I think we all know that, and that's a great lesson for another day. But what I am trying to say 
is that I'm not so sure that God sees the same distinction that you do. So I don't think, like I said, I don't think he designed for us to, to really focus on being Christians here, here, and here and forget about everywhere else. And so the last point I want to make, the third realization that I had was this idea um, of lifestyle. And I, you know, I'm, at the pla- I'm at the place in my life where I'm, I'm 21, I'm coming into my last year of college, I'm starting to do internships and things like that, and by this time next year, I'll have to be in the actual workforce, and my life will be real. And so what I'm thinking about and what I'm facing is I'm thinking, I'm at the time in my life where I'm thinking about, okay, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years from now, who do I want to say I've been? What do I want to do and who do I want to be? And when I read the scripture, this was one of my answers. I want to be somebody who, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years from now, God looks at me and says, here is my son who did what was good for me. You know, and I, I think you guys have similar hearts that God would look at us and say, you know, here is my son, here is my daughter, and they love me because they've done what is good for me. And that was so inspiring to me. That was so encouraging to me when I read this because I thought about the life of someone who always does what's good. You know, that's a life that's calm, a life that's peaceful, a life that's mature, a life that's faithful, a life that's fruitful, all those things. And so when I thought about it and when I meditated on it, that's really what this idea of do what is good is supposed to mean. And so that's what I hope you guys can take away today. My last point that I want to make on my realizations was that God calls us to live a life as Christians where we do what is good in every situation. So we're going we're gonna to head into a close. Um, I only really have one more point that I want to make. And the point that I really want to leave you with, you guys, my favorite point of all, is why. All right, I shared some of what, you know, some of what I thought, my realizations from studying it out, studying out what is good means, you know, it, it means you got to be ready. It means normally, most of the time, the choice is obvious, and it means we're called to live it in every part of our lives. But why? Why do what is good? Why would Paul take so much time to emphasize this theme over and over and over again throughout his writings and really throughout his life? Some of you guys may have been here, some of you guys may not have been here, but if you do remember, a couple months ago, I gave a lesson on the topic of biblical grace. And my hope in that lesson was really just to take grace and try to explain how it's meant to be lived out biblically. Try to explain when the, when the writers of the, of the uh, New Testament wrote the word grace, what did they mean? When the people who first heard and read the New Testament, what did, you know, when they heard grace, what did they understand? And these two charts up here very briefly summarize biblical grace. I'm just going to give a very, very brief summary. But if you look at the one on the left, you'll see that grace is always meant to be a relationship between two people a benefactor and a client. And the benefactor is someone in society who has all the wealth, all the prestige, all the power, all the fame, all the notoriety, and the client is someone who is poor and has none of it. And you'll see that grace is meant to be a continual relationship between the two of them. If you look at my recycling diagram on the right, you'll see the steps of grace. Because grace is a, a relationship that always involves three parts. The first, that downward arrow, is called um, the gift given, or kadis, which is the Greek word for grace. So the first, the first part was actually the giving of grace. And what that meant is the benefactor would willingly and freely give a portion of their wealth, a portion of their power, a portion of their prestige, and their identity to a client 
who had not earned it previously and who could not repay it. And then the bottom two arrows were the client's responsibility. The first responsibility of the client wasn't to respond, wasn't to start serving. It was first to receive the gift with joy and then to respond with gratitude. And if you were there, one of the things you might remember from my lesson was I made the point that this understanding of grace forms the underlying structure and organization for a lot of different writings in the New Testament. Part of the reason I chose the section of Titus that we read today is because Paul very intentionally uses this structure throughout the whole thing. He starts it this way and he finishes it this way. So as we close out this morning, I just want to return to that part, to what we read today, except this time I've color-coded it for you. I've color-coded it so you can see the structure, see how it works a little more clearly. The red is that first part. The red is the grace given to us, and the blue is our response. I don't know how easy it is to see up there, so I'm going to read it down here. Sorry about that, you guys. It looks good on here, let me tell you. (laughs) So I'll read the red part first. And as I read the red part, you know, I guess you don't really have much to look at. But as I read the red part, I just want you to listen, and I just want you to hear. And what I really want you to listen and hear is what God says about you. I want you to hear what God says about your identity, how much he loves you, and what he's done for you. And whether you've been a Christian, you know, longer than you care to admit, or whether you don't think you're one today, I just want you to try to hear these words fresh. So I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then skipping down to the part you can't see. It says, through Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. So I'm just going to summarize what Paul said there. God has given grace that has brought salvation to you and to me. He, He did that through Jesus who gave himself for us so that we could be cleansed from our wickedness, purified, so that we could be God's own people. Therefore, let's do what's good for him. He closes this passage, and again, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you guys can't see it up there, but he closes it in Titus 3, 4 through 8, and I just want to make a point. If you ever, if Christianity ever gets discouraging, if Christianity ever gets confusing, go back to Titus 3, 4 through 8, because it is one of the sweetest and most powerful summaries of the gospel you can find in the Bible. And it's probably my favorite personally. But I'm going to read... Four through, uh, four through eight now, it says, and this is the red part that, you know, unfortunately you can't see. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that once we were justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And I'm just going to repeat what God says there. He says, God, has, God loves you, and he has been kind to you. He saved you not because he did anything to deserve it, but he saved you out of his mercy. He washed you, he gave you rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit, and he gave it to you generously so that you could have the hope of becoming his son and daughter and the hope of eternal life. So therefore, devote yourself to doing what is good for him. The last point I want to make, and I promise you, you guys will be able to see this one, is that as Christians, because God has loved us and saved us, let us do whatever is good for him. 
I stand in my left for you guys, you're dismissed. Thank you very much.